It was quiet in the early hours of February 6, 1985, when Helen Wilson was killed in her downtown Beatrice apartment. No one reported hearing a thing when the 68-year-old was raped and suffocated. But nearly 35 years later, echoes from her murder and a troubled investigation continue to ring. The reverberations reach as far as the Nebraska legislature, the governor's desk, and the U.S. Supreme Court. Helen's family would agonize for four years, wondering who killed their mother and grandmother until justice seemed delivered. On November 9, 1989, a jury returned guilty verdicts against the six people charged in her death, five of whom who had confessed to taking part in the crime. But everything the family thought that they knew about Helen Wilson's death was turned upside down by DNA testing in 1998. The testing hadn't been available during the original case more than a decade earlier, but now it unraveled the investigation of a hog farmer turned detective, and its results reversed the six convictions and freed three people from prison, including one who was serving a life sentence. How could all of these people have testified under oath for a crime they did not commit? How could they have misremembered key details and turned on one another? And more than anything else, how could physical evidence portray the trusted work of law enforcement and put six innocent people, now known as the Beatrice Six, behind bars? I'm Elizabeth Rembert, and I've been working with the Lincoln Journal Star to retell this story based on its decade-old, award-winning, presumed guilty project. Over the next four episodes of this podcast, we'll look at the crime, investigation, trial, and finally the exonerations and $28.1 million payout that awaits the Beatrice Six and lingers in the headlines and on the heads of Gage County taxpayers. First, let's start with the crime and what happened in the dark of the early morning on February 6, 1985, in apartment four in a downtown Beatrice brick building. The sounds you're hearing are from outside the building, when I was in Beatrice on a sunny Wednesday afternoon. Helen's building sits across from a park and near two churches, and you can hear the bells from one of them ringing on the hour. You can tell there's not a whole lot going on in downtown Beatrice, just the occasional car passing by and those church bells. But on the evening of February 5th, 1985, Helen Wilson had a chest cold and felt miserable during her son's visit. Daryl Wilson kept his mother company while his wife, Katie, was bowling. Once bowling league was over, Katie would stop over to chat, drink coffee, and watch Johnny Carson, just like every Tuesday night. But tonight, Helen hadn't brewed coffee and she apologized when Katie arrived at about 9.30 p.m. When the couple left, Katie said she'd call at midnight to remind her mother-in-law to take more medicine. At 11.50 p.m., Katie called. No answer. She tried again at midnight and again 15 minutes later. Katie and Daryl assumed Helen had slept through the rings, and Daryl said he's carried that guilt for decades about that assumption and that he didn't check on his mother. Helen's sister lived in the same apartment building, 
and discovered Helen's body the next morning. Her sister's husband called 911 at 9.29 a.m. on February 6th, and when police came, they laid down towels in the widow's apartment so investigators wouldn't step on the evidence. Helen was found on her back, wearing a blue nightgown, stockings, a watch, a mother's ring, and her wedding band. A washcloth covered her face. Underneath it, an afghan was tied around her head so tightly it smashed her nose to the side. Blood-stained sheets, a blood spot on the wall, and an overturned footstool indicated a struggle. Detectives collected a ripped $5 bill, a black-handled steak knife, bed sheets, and a pair of women's underwear that had been carefully laid on the couch. They cut out carpeting from beneath the body, they dusted for fingerprints, and took hair and blood samples from Helen's clothes before moving the body north to Lincoln for an autopsy. In all, the detectives preserved about 50 pieces of evidence. From the scene, detectives concluded the assailant had pried the door from the jam and slipped the lock. Helen Wilson had been raped and suffocated, her hands bound. An autopsy showed her chest cold was pneumonia and she had likely died because the afghan was tied so tightly over her face. Police ruled out robbery as a motive because nothing of value was missing from the apartment. Her purse had kept its $1,300, which was a lot of money at the time, about $3,000 today. The apartment did not appear to be ransacked. Helen Wilson was a great-grandmother who lived by herself, but she wasn't alone. Family was important to her. She sang and played ukulele in a band with her brothers and sisters, and they called her Little Miss Sunshine. She loved bingo, red beers, and visiting friends, but her three children, seven grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren were her greatest loves. She wrote a poem for each of her grandchildren, including this one to the then Stephanie Hausman. A blonde little head on a pillow so white, a peek out of one eye and my finger held tight, two angel feet outstretched from undercover, and I just think I'm that darling's great-grandmother. Helen Wilson had no enemies. Who would attack her with such savagery? In the days after the murder, Beatrice police searched for that answer. They staked out the funeral to take pictures of each mourner, photocopied signatures from guest books, and collected names from flower cards. They monitored the Pleasant View Cemetery and even listened to a voice-activated tape recorder planted on Helen's grave, just in case the killer visited. They would return to Helen's apartment over and over to look for fingerprints and collect more items for forensic testing. One by one, they took a clock, a phone book, chimes from the front door, and empty Miller beer cans from the kitchen trash. Six days after Helen's death, the Nebraska State Patrol's crime lab gave the police some news. The blood found on the blanket, sheets, nightgown, and underwear indicated the killer had type B blood. Now Helen had type O, so she must have drawn blood from her attacker. The finding was especially significant because fewer than 1 in 10 people are type B. 
Blood profiling was 1985's most sophisticated forensic technique, and the tests also showed that Helen's attacker was a non-secretor. This meant that enzymes from his blood would not show up in bodily fluids like sperm and saliva. Only 20% of people are non-secretors, so the results narrowed the field of potential suspects even further. Investigators took samples from dozens of people in their search for a type B non-secretor, but their best lead walked into the police station 10 days after the murder with a story, not a sample. Mike Hyatt, a 23-year-old unemployed Beatrice man, told police he had ran into his old friend Bruce Allen Smith the day Helen was killed. Mike said the 22-year-old Oklahoma native really just wanted to go home, but he didn't have any money. Mike helped him out by buying Bruce's watch for $4. Later, the pair met at a downtown Beatrice bar where they drank until midnight. Mike told police his friend had told him he was horny. It had been a long time since he'd had any sex, Bruce had said, and he was determined to get some any way he could. They headed for a trailer house party about 20 miles away where Bruce kept grabbing at one of the hosts and telling her he wanted some action. Eventually, he got kicked out of the party and on the way back to Beatrice, he told Mike he'd get even with everyone at the trailer. Mike dropped off his drunk, angry friend about two blocks south of Helen Wilson's apartment in the freezing air at about 3.45 a.m. Bruce headed north. He'd attended grade school in Beatrice and his grandmother once lived in Helen's building. The police jumped on the lead. An acquaintance told a state patrol investigator she'd seen Bruce the next day with his hands and face covered with scratches. He'd said he'd fought with Mike the night before, but Mike said there was no fight when the investigator checked back with him. Then police talked to a woman whose wallet was stolen from the trailer house party. They found it, minus $60, in an alley near Helen's building. Next, they heard that a man matching Bruce Smith's description had boarded a bus bound for Wichita, Kansas, three days after Helen's body was found. He'd really wanted a bus to Oklahoma City, but a ticket agent remembered that he hadn't had enough money. When police visited Bruce's half-brother, his wife said Bruce had knocked on the door of their Beatrice home at about 6.30 a.m. on February 6th, the morning after Helen Wilson had been murdered. Bruce scared her and she didn't trust him, so she didn't let him in. But when he returned a couple of hours later, she let him in to sleep. He told her his nose hurt because he'd been hit with a cue stick and he'd been in a fight the night before. Police also found a convenience store clerk who identified Bruce as the guy who'd stolen a bag of potato chips early the morning Helen's body was found. The clerk remembered blood on Bruce's clothing. On March 5, 1985, a month after Helen's murder, the patrol investigator asked for a court order to get blood, hair, saliva, and prints from Bruce. He and a Beatrice cop headed south to Oklahoma, where they learned Bruce was also a suspect in 1981 rape there. And in 1984, Oklahoma City police had investigated a homicide that matched some of the characteristics of Helen's murder. Bruce may have been in the area where the rape and homicide occurred, the Oklahoma police said. The Beatrice investigators finally tracked Bruce down on March 7th. Joyce Gilchrist, an Oklahoma City police forensic chemist, tested his blood and delivered the results. He was type B. 
but he was a secretor, not what they were looking for. Years later, Joyce Gilchrist would be discredited and dismissed for accusations of falsifying evidence in murder cases. Within three weeks, Beatrice authorities had worked door-to-door in a 49-block area around Helen's apartment. They visited schools to study attendance records and compile a list of kids who were absent on February 6th. Within 12 weeks, they'd interviewed 318 people. The investigation had moved on from Bruce Allen Smith as a promising lead, and it grew cold until it was picked up by Bert Searcy, a hog farmer turned investigator. Bert had a background in law enforcement with the Beatrice Police Department, but he left that role to raise hogs. On February 6, 1985, he had tuned in to watch the midday commodity reports and instead saw the news of Helen's murder. As he ate his lunch and thought about the crime, the 37-year-old felt a pull back to his roots in law enforcement. Bert told the Wilson family he was a private detective and received their permission to investigate her death. He contacted his connections in the Beatrice party scene as his first step. He let it be known he wanted information about Helen's murder, and on April 7th, he spoke to a 17-year-old girl who said she had a story. In a report that he wrote nearly four years later in 1989, he describes what confidential informant number one told him in April 1985. The girl had been standing outside of school at 7.30 a.m. on February 6th. She had noticed police cars across the street by Helen's apartment building when an acquaintance approached her and said she had killed an old lady inside that apartment. The girl didn't believe her, but the acquaintance offered even more information as proof. The victim would be found in the living room, on her back, with her hands bound and her face covered by an afghan. The 17-year-old girl said the acquaintance who had bragged about the crime was Joanne Taylor. Joanne was a 21-year-old North Carolina native who'd moved to Beatrice to be with her daughter. She'd shown her violent side in the Beatrice party scene, even one time attempting to break this 17-year-old girl's arm in a car door. And no, Bert wrote in his report, the girl said Joanne didn't do it alone. She had mentioned another name, Lobo. The 17-year-old girl's testimony was the first push on the line of dominoes that would fall to become the case against the Beatrice Six. Her story created the groundwork for Bert Searcy's investigation and allowed him to pull in one suspect after another until all were convinced the group had committed the crime in apartment four. In the next episode, we'll follow Bert on his trail to find Joanne and Lobo, and we'll watch how the pieces fall into place to condemn four more suspects. We'll see how actions from the investigators push Nebraska to join the 37 states where DNA tests have declared 365 imprisoned people innocent. And we'll see how the defendants themselves played a part in their own wrongful convictions by turning against each other and into the accusations from the state. But one of the Beatrice Six always maintained he'd been denied justice. He defied the power of the state and he was right.